Support for In a City Like Yours comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Listen up. Untrimmed pubes are a thing of the past. It's time to gear up and get yourself the gift of shaving this holiday season. I'm talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. This revolutionary company, Manscaped, has redesigned the electric trimmer. It's also waterproof so you can use it in the shower. The Lawnmower 2.0 comes inside the perfect package, which makes it the perfect gift this holiday season. Tis the season to manscape, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, your friends, the best gift of all, the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. That's B-I-G-H-E-A-D-S. This is a call to action, fellas. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code BIGHEADS. Clean up your nuts and make Santa proud this year. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Lori tells how, as an adult, she realized that she was a childhood incest survivor. She takes us through this journey, which eventually became the basis of a book titled My House of Lies, Awakening from a Childhood of Sexual Abuse. Here is Lori's story. Hi, I'm Lori Golden, and I come from Merrick, Long Island, and I grew up in a very, um, an environment that was middle to upper middle class, very nice homes, a, a nice community, and what's important about that is for years I believed that I had a perfect, wonderful childhood. And the story I held on to, and this was true about us, we all went skiing as a family, we all did boating, we had, we owned a boat, 
Um, I, we went camping. We did a lot of things as a family. And so a lot of my friends were actually jealous of my family piling into our station wagon and going wherever because we had a upstate New York, we had a house. Um, so we went skiing every weekend. And then during the summers, they'd see us going across the street and to our boating. And I really grew up with that story that not only me believing that story, but my family telling that story about our family. And the reason why that's so important is that 37 years old, I got into Narcotics Anonymous and I was living in New York City. And a year later, um, I mean, in 1986, I decided I was going to go to San Diego. And I was hitting a bottom. I, it, it, in recovery, it's called a geographic. So I thought the buildings were, and the lack of good weather, and even though I love snow skiing, I really, I was very much into scuba diving at the time, and I was taking scuba diving trips, and I, I went on a Cousteau trip um, with his son, Jean-Michel Cousteau, and I came back and I said, I have to move. I have to move to a warm climate. My mother had moved to San Diego and I was back in New York at the time living in New York City and I had a private practice and I was a psychotherapist and I was on the board of directors of the first anorexic bulimia society. Um, I had a lot going in New York but I gave up my practice because I felt an increasing feeling of anxiety being alone in my apartment. And I kept saying, this must be the weather, the buildings, I feel trapped. It's not, I need to have easy access to the outdoors. It's the weather makes me feel trapped. And I felt very much alone during that time. Even though I was doing a lot of good things, I was doing a lot of traveling, but I was also medicating myself. And I was using drugs to pills, pain relievers. You know, when I got older, I was using those kind of drugs. When I was younger, I was using everything and anything. I just didn't shoot up drugs. And here I am, you know, in New York, I would go up to my pool club and go swimming and that would be like my way out of feeling trapped in my apartment. I didn't know what trapped meant at that time. I just kept feeling like I couldn't, I needed to get out. And it was a desperate kind of feeling that I was getting in touch with. And that made me move to San Diego. And a year later, after starting a practice here, because I was at the time a psychotherapist practicing, I realized a year later that I wanted to kill myself. And I was sitting on my bathroom floor sobbing and I threw all my pills into the toilet. And I called the manager who was an AA at the time. And she really started talking to me because she saw 
the desperateness in me. And I did talk to her about, I don't want to live. I don't know what's wrong with me. I keep feeling trapped. I feel more scared now than I've ever felt in my life. I felt scared in San Diego, whereas in New York, I had a doorman apartment. So the doorman made me feel safer than being in an apartment in San Diego when I moved out here. So I got into NA and Narcotics Anonymous and I said, hi, I'm Lori, and I admitted I'm an addict. And the rippling effect that it had on me, it was like my insights felt like an earthquake was happening. And it, I left the meeting and I thought to myself, I have a feeling I've been lying to myself about a lot of things all these years. And it just so happened within six months, I started getting memories of incest. I didn't know it was incest, it was sexual abuse. I didn't know that my father was my perpetrator. But what I did know was saying I'm an addict did not met, meet up to my story of such an idyllic life. And what I found out is being able as a child I was able to dissociate, which people do when they've been sexually abused, especially in the home. And that means that I thought I was afraid of this big ape in the hallway. And I wrote a book recently in July, My House of Lies. And I used my art as a way of showing what it was like to be sitting in a hallway late at night with this huge ape that I had to pass by. And as a child, that ape was real. I could hear its teeth smashing. I could hear, I mean, I remembered all of this in my recovery. And that was in my first seven years of recovery that I went through all my PTSD traumas and worked very hard on myself. And I realized that all the trapped feelings. But anyway, the ape, I just want to say, the ape was, I was scared of the ape. I didn't know that I was scared of my father. So I would try to get down the hallway as a child to get into my parents' bedroom so I would feel safe because in my room, in my bedroom, everything came alive. And I, I drew this as well. Butterflies that were on the wallpaper came alive. My dolls started staring at me. My, I, I had this incredible feeling of everything in my room was alive and unsafe. And that I had to get out of, I mean, there were alligators under the bed. It, so many things were going on. Shadows were looming and I was scared of everything. And I remember at seven years old and eight years old, I would walk to the end of my bed and jump into the hallway in like kind of diagonally so that my feet wouldn't touch the floor and I wouldn't get eaten. But then I'd get into the hallway and in the corner, I got stuck. And I remember sitting in that corner like probably one, two, three in the morning, terrified to go past the ape that was living on the first floor behind banisters. 
and I was on the hallway of the second floor. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get past this ape? And I, I was frozen in place. And I remember screaming in my head, mommy, mommy, you know, I, I wanted somebody to help me feel safe. And all I wanted to do was go back to sleep. So I thought safeness was in my parents' bedroom. So I get to my parents' bedroom after I made a plan to really hover close to the wall so the ape couldn't get its arms in and pull me into him. him. And it, it was always a sense of I'm going to be eaten in some way. And I would get to my parents' bedroom. I would go to my mother's side of the bed. And I realized I never wanted to go to my father's side of the bed. But then my mother would insist I get in the middle of them. My mother would fall back to sleep and my father would put his arms or, you know, like probably over my body. And I felt, I remember feeling alone and like I couldn't move. I couldn't, I, I was so afraid of waking my father. And I didn't know why at this point. I just, re those were the memories I started having. And then I remembered when I was, I didn't have yet the image of incest. I just knew it involved sexual abuse because I remembered, I wrote this in my book when I was in third grade, I was compulsively masturbating. And that is a symptom of children that are being sexually abused. And I read about it because in 1987, this wasn't a hot topic. I mean, this was not a topic that was talked about easily. And I started remembering the things that I did as a child. And it all, it, all evidence pointed to sexual abuse, but I had no sexual abuse memories yet. And I, but what I did remember was getting down that hallway and night after night trying to get to safety. And then as a teenager, I remember getting like lying in bed at night, looking at my door and wanting to go to the bathroom, but not being able to get out of bed. I was like, I, I remember laying there until I could barely hold it anymore. And this was in my teens, early teens, later teens. And I remember crossing, getting from my bed to my door was like I was crossing shark infested water. It's like every shadow, everything in my room, I felt scared me. And then I get to the door and I peek around the door and then I had to go down the stairs and above living in the stairwell in, in, in this like um, ceiling trap door that would be open during the summer and I felt like a man was going to jump down and rape me and use a knife or kill me in some way and so I still when I was a child didn't think this was my father I remember waking up in the morning and feeling like as a teenager like I went on a bad trip like I was a werewolf and I, something really evil happened during the night. And then in the morning, I didn't remember what happened. I dissociated. I was able to wake up in the morning and that was the only way I was able to get up and go to school um, in, 
all my years of being in school because my incest occurred from five years old until 16. So it, it was a terrifying experience at night, night after night after night. And I remember I would run down the stairs as a teenager and because we were on the third floor and I'd run down the stairs and get into the bathroom and lock the bathroom door and fall asleep on the bathroom floor on the mat. So this is what I remembered. And I started getting terrifying feelings at night and I couldn't sleep with, I had to sleep with the lights on. Um, this was when I was in early recovery, my first six months. Um, I remember talking to somebody who worked at night so I could talk to them during the night and tell them how scared I was. And I, I didn't understand yet that I was sexually abused. It actually didn't come to me, just these terrifying images of shadows. And I felt like if my hand, I used to sleep on the couch with my back against the couch back. And I remember my hands, if they were dangling, or I could never let them like extend over the couch because I felt like something under me was going to, like like when I was a child, I felt like I was gonna be pulled in somehow. And I had to keep all my extremities safe under the covers, no matter how hot I was. And I slowly started getting images, flashbacks of sexual abuse. And about six to seven months later, it hit me that it was my father. And that was an extremely painful, terrifying journey because I didn't want it to be my father, but it was. And I remembered I started having images of the shadow, his shadow coming through the bedroom door and waiting for him at night. And I, all these images came to me with my father in them. And then I started having real flashbacks of what he actually did sexually to me. And I share about this very openly because I have met so many people in Narcotics Anonymous, in Food Addicts Anonymous, in Alcoholics Anonymous, who have abuse like this in their history of some sort, not always the family. It could be a teacher, it could be um, a babysitter, a relative, but when something like this occurs for children, it's, it doesn't matter if it goes on a lot or if it goes on just a little. The experience, you know, the experience of a child feeling unsafe, it sets up a kind of mistrust of adults. And it, because if something like this can happen, then children feel they're vulnerable to this and it doesn't go away. It stays with you. I've worked with more survivors who remember a babysitter coming over and maybe a couple of times having that experience, but not being able to tell their parents or if they did tell their parents that a neighbor or somebody at the school or then often back then parents would say, no, that couldn't have happened. You're probably imagining it. 
So a lot of people were had felt very alone in this experience, and yet there are many people out there that are help, women today in the workplaces, in you know, um, sex trafficking, um, in schools, in you know, Boy Scouts of America. Um, you know, in in Girl Scouts, all over, have been affected by this in one way or another. The church—I know that's a big one now—but I've worked with people years ago that told me stories about the church and about the priest or about their school teacher, and not understanding the complexity of this being sexual abuse. So. I, it's important for me to share about this because I am a psychotherapist and I do work with survivors. And I also work with the Burn Society, a Burn Institute actually, and I work with burn survivors who have PTSD symptoms. And I've worked with war veterans that have PTSD symptoms and abuse people who have been abused physically and emotionally and sexually. That have PTSD in their adulthood, so that's like that's my story. And what I loved about this recovery is every all the ways that I try to keep the horror down, and I would put the the, the, the memories in these like boxes that I couldn't access inside me. It felt like I had these rooms that were inside me and in one room was a horror, but along with the horror and the memory was something positive that I buried along with it. And when I was hospitalized in uh, 1992 in a sexual abuse unit in a hospital, I started remembering painting and drawing as a child and how much I loved to do art. And that started me because I had no access to that up until that time. I I couldn't have told you that I knew how to draw. And that's how dis disconnected I was from who I really am. And drugs, of course, helped me to keep my disconnection going. But when I got out of the hospital, I wrote to my elementary school, I told them I was seeking information about myself, did I like art, did I like, and sure enough, they sent me some um, information that my sixth grade teacher said I'm very talented in art and music, and it was shocking to me. I, it, it, you know, I started doing big finger paintings in the hospital, and they were so interesting, and I thought, this feels so familiar to me, you know, being in paint and with colors and it, I, I didn't have any memories until later on that I took art lessons, I loved art, I loved to draw. So when I wrote to my sixth grade teacher and then I called him, he was actually still in my community and he remembered who I was and he remembered how much I love to do the big murals um, for plays and big murals that we used to put on the wall. And I started remembering these things. 
and I was in special singing. And it's just so interesting to have no clue that this is a part of you and yet really was my, a passion of mine. And so drugs, you know, abuse and drugs, I made sure that I killed my passion for lots of things. I made sure I kept it in check because in that passion was abuse. And so I was trying so hard not to remember anything that I couldn't remember that I, up until 13 years old, that's when I stopped painting and drawing. So then I took a drawing class and in the first class, I, she asked us to draw a, a pen, you know, a, a, one of our hands holding a pen. And I thought, I don't know how to do this. And then I started drawing it and I knew how to do it. It was amazing. It, it, it was the, such a, a a, a, an amazing experience to watch myself drawing in a way that looked like I was drawing my whole life. And she even said, she held up my drawing. She talked about why it was so good. And I, afterwards I went up to her and I said, you know, I was sexually abused. I didn't remember being able to draw. And after that, I got into a painting class with a teacher who really helped me to develop my own style. And I love it. You know, it's part of my life now. And for years, it was never part of my life. Did you know that a man once jumped into a bulletproof window so much that he busted it out of the frame and fell to his death? I do. Hey, I'm Nicholas Howe, and I made an improvised comedy storytelling podcast about this death and many others. Using a multiverse of me's as the catalyst, I explore the various ways people have died. I also have special guests on and freak them out about how dangerous the world is. Did you know lakes can explode? You do now. Listen to the How Will I Die podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at H-W-I-D-I-E-P-O-D. So, I got a guard dog in recovery, and this was so important because I was in, it was in 1990, and I was in San Diego and my friends were actually murdered by a serial killer in San Diego. And it actually, it was one of my clients and her mom. And I was terrified at that point. I, I got into recovery in 1987 and I had scary flashbacks and things, but I lived in absolute terror once this occurred. And the only thing that I realized could help me feel safe was a police trained guard dog. Now, it's not that I lived in luxury, I didn't, but I felt like I could not go outside in the dark. I couldn't get to meetings because I was terrified that at any moment somebody was gonna get me. And so it, a many flashbacks started to occur. I got inundated with flashbacks during that time. But the thing that I realized that saved me was my guard dog. Because for the first time, I felt like I could let my hypervigilance go and live more comfortably in my own home than I ever had. And for the first time, I was able to sleep with my back towards the bedroom door. And I realized 
up until that point in my life, I always had to face the bedroom door. And then I, you know, there were so many, I used my guard dog in lots of therapy work and on myself and with other therapists and in my, my images of protection and, um, you know, that I was a little girl and I had this protection that nobody could get me ever again. And it, it just was very strengthening. And I learned as a woman how to take care of myself, how to protect myself. I, I took classes in mace when mace came out and then of course later on pepper spray. But these are things that women need to do because I can't tell you how many women come in and feel unsafe in their homes or feel unsafe walking in a parking lot and don't think to use pepper spray. It's just like not in their realm of thinking how to protect themselves. So I, I really love this recovery because I learned how to love myself. I learned how to be good to myself. I learned how to communicate my fears and I had friends that were also doing their sexual abuse recovery with me so I had a group of women that I was really close to that I could share all these dark secrets that kept me so alone and so isolated in life and I always felt I was dirty inside you know it, it, no matter how I dressed and I always dressed nicely no matter what I did I was always athletic I was all took care of myself but no matter what I did I knew deep down that I was ashamed and that I was dirty and that if anyone could really see that about me they wouldn't love me and that I carried all growing up up until recovery up until having these memories so there was a lot of healing that occurred. And when I wrote my book recently, over the past two years I worked on it, I really told my story very vividly um, about what it's really like for a child to go through sexual abuse in the home. And I remembered details of my childhood with the ape and the man and how I dissociated and what I didn't know about myself because of that. I never, I never even thought I could tell anybody. So once I said I was a recovering drug addict, it came to me that I was also an incest survivor. And those two things have given me so much freedom and I, I just love my recovery. I still love my recovery. And I love working with people that have any of these issues themselves. And um, when I wrote my book, I felt like there was a, a deeper healing. It, not that I wasn't healed, because I wouldn't have been able to write the book if I wasn't. But I knew at some point in my later years when my son grew up, because I adopted at 45, that when he grew up, that I would at some point write about this. And 
it took a lot of effort and it took time to put into words all that my life was about and all the healing that I did along the way. Like I took dance classes because I remembered loving to dance. And I remember when I grew up, we had nannies living in the community. And at that time, I was in a white community, a Jewish community, and everybody that was black were nannies or from other parts of the world. And we'd get together in our basements with these with the nannies, and I loved it. I loved dancing. I learned Brazilian. I I learned all these kinds of dancing um, steps and music and drumming. So in my recovery, as I was remembering this, I took Brazilian dancing. I took djembe drumming, and I I just started how much I love rhythm, and it came naturally to me and that was the thing to be cut off from yourself by drugs and not know what like stifling just a natural energy in myself for so many years it was amazing it was and and of course when i took brazilian dancing and i took djembe drumming it all brought up other memories of being in my home and what it was like and so everything all the good the unbe- the bad unraveled with it and that's really what my book is about it's awakening from a childhood of sexual abuse and um and my title is my house of lies and for me i grew up in one big lie so that's that's what you know my story is about and you know i also um when i got into recovery i never could read and people say well how did you get your master's degree well i would read the things that i had to read but i could never concentrate i could never settle into like just a pleasure book just to lay down and read and i envied people who were able to do that just lay in their bed at night and read and for me what i remembered was trying to pay attention to reading when i was in school and always always at the same time listening for where's my father what part of the house is he in is he going to come into my room and so distracted always from that so they put me in the slowest reading group when i was in second grade and of course i didn't i couldn't concentrate i had ptsd i didn't know it then they didn't know it so what's wrong with this little kid that is showing she's intelligent but can't read and i really couldn't read i couldn't concentrate so for years reading i always felt like i was reading too slow and all my friends in in elementary school i would go out to the reading specialist and they were in the smart reading group and i was in the slow reading group and so there was so much shame attached to that because really deep down i always felt like if it's like i was being signaled out there there was like a spotlight shining on me and it was just every time i was called out of 
class to go to this special reading group, I felt like I was, you know, on display. And I had a lot of issues with my mother growing up because I didn't trust her. And I, so all of this, there was never any place that I felt safe. And it's really hard to read when you don't feel safe. It, it really is. And I, it, you know, some people escape into reading and some people absolutely cannot settle into reading. And it was about eight years into my recovery where I started reading for pleasure. And that was amazing. So, you know, it, it, and I hated to write. Writing was not my thing. It was very hard for me to put down into words what I needed to say. And at, after writing a ton of journals and recalling memories and experiences and things that I loved and didn't love and all of it working out in some way on paper, it was it helped me to write my book. And um, people who know me from the past laugh hysterically with me when I, when I actually say, I can't believe I wrote a book. And I know I believe I wrote it, but it's still the, the a whole, just accessing things like that, that comes so naturally to people. And I had my master's degree, so it should have come naturally to me, but it didn't. So, I love that I can just lay back and read a book. I love that I can be quiet with myself and feel peace inside me. I never knew what that was like because I couldn't get quiet with myself because when the moment I got quiet with myself, I felt frightened. And so I never allowed myself to just be. And I had developed all of that, not just in drug recovery, but in sexual abuse recovery. And I love that I can be quiet and peaceful and not talk, even though I'm talking now, but, you know, just be with myself. I could never do that. So I just want to say that my life has been lots of pain and lots of suffering and lots of healing and lots of gratitude for the healing and who I've become today. And, you know, we are who we are and this is my story and it's made me who I am today. So for that, I'm grateful. So I also have a sister and a brother. My brother is 10 years younger than me and my sister is four years older who have now truly remembered being sexually abused by my father. So it wasn't just me, although we all lived in secrecy and we were told that if we tell basically that I could be killed and, or that my mother would leave or I'd be thrown in jail and my father would just come up with all these different things that I really had to live with and it was very isolating. And I lived in a family and felt very alone. And I felt close to my sister, but I could never tell her what was going on. And my brother, um, over the years, he was also into 
drug addiction and my sister was she's now in recovery my brother's been in recovery and it's just been a lot of healing in my family i was just wondering if your mother ever came to terms with what your uh what you went through did she ever believe you you know it's i'm glad you brought that up because i got focused on my father i no she'll say she believes me she actually read my book she's 95 and what i i didn't see her for 16 years in my recovery i stopped seeing her 2 years into my recovery because i called child protective services on my father and my mother basically said he was a good father and i knew that that's what she told the cps workers and so I stopped I told her I can't have her in my life because I don't trust her. I don't and prior to that I was telling her about the abuse thinking okay maybe this is why I can't get close to my mother because I have all this this secret that I've been carrying. But the truth is she was scary. She was dangerous for me. I felt crazy around her. I felt like I things didn't add up for me. And in my book I write very openly about how I experienced my mother growing up because she was loved by everybody and I would she was like a head counselor at a day camp that I went to a large day camp in Oceanside and I would stand back and just watch her and try to figure out what what who is she and why are people so crazy about her because i felt so mistrustful of her um i didn't believe anything i didn't believe her in many ways and it's still true to this day but the difference after reuniting with her after 16 years of not seeing her the reason i actually reunited was my fiance died suddenly it was a lot of things going on in my life and i really knew at that point i was strong enough to ha- to to see her and not feel ungrounded because of seeing her and what i said to her when we got reunited my son was 9 at the time he hadn't ever met her but he wanted to and what i said to her was I do not want to have any conversations with you now about the past. It's over for me. It's done. It's that's my healing has really been sufficient in this area. I don't need you to validate anything for me, but I also need you to know that I don't want to talk about it with you. And the reason I said that to her was because she was still in denial. She acts like she's not, but I know she is. And so when I wrote the book, um it started bringing up all sorts of things with me and my mother again that I hadn't felt in years because I really practiced, you know, the tools of Al-Anon on my mother, which is to sit back, let go, not touch spots that I knew were going to bring any kind of um bullshit, so to speak. in our conversation i kind of kept out of those things but when i wrote my book it some of it came back and some anger came up and i gave her my book to read she read it and 
we started talking afterwards and I realized I can't, I can't, you still are in denial. <laughs> She's still in denial about this. She wants to believe that she didn't know anything. And I said, I said to her in my talk with her, I said, you knew from the time I was 37 on up and I'm 69, you knew all these years and you never really wanted to do recovery in this. And I know that that's true. So I'm back to feeling in ease with her, but I, I really helped, I really said to her, my heart has always been held back. I don't have a heart-love relationship with her. I enjoy her. She can be very funny. She's very intelligent. She got her, she finished her master's degree online at 89 years old. I mean, she's quite capable, but in this area, I can't touch it. So I'm glad you asked that because I, I really, there was a lot about my mother that was involved in my growing up with this. Okay, your, the name of your book is um, My House of Lies. Uh-huh. Uh, and it could be bought on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. It's, all, it's available everywhere. Yeah, it's available. Well, you can go to my website, and um, my, in my website, you can get, it's lauriegoldenauthor.com. So you can order it off my website, or you can go to Amazon and order it off Amazon. And... Um, yeah, it's called My House of Lies, Awakening from a Childhood of Sexual Abuse. And Lori Golden, I'm the author. And I, I also want to say if there's anyone that wants to reach out and talk to me, I am more than welcome to give my number. Um, I have given it out in lots of situations. Can I give you my number now? You just want it to be live on the air? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, 858 858- Two one five, two three two six. Yeah, I do. That's very good. Uh, I, you're you're the second guest I've had who's done that, who's given out their their phone number for everybody you know to reach out to anybody who needs help. Um, and it's really I really appreciate that you you do make that effort. Oh, it's really important to me.